This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one um, in the pew back or close by. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love you to take that as a gift. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Audra. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. My name is Neil, serve as one of the pastors here. And we are in our, our fourth and final week of Advent. Uh, Christmas Eve is coming up and then Christmas Day. Um, maybe for some of you, like doing the Christian year, celebrating Advent, maybe it feels a little bit still kind of strange or disconnected. Uh, or maybe you've even been around Park for a while, but it's like, what, what is this season of Advent? Like trying to get our hearts and our minds around it to really engage it. Uh, I feel like I had my own little Advent experience uh, a little over a month ago. Uh, but a week before Thanksgiving, um, got the, the beloved positive COVID test, little lollipop with the pink line. And um, the, uh, you know, got to recognize so many different experiences with COVID and, and a positive test. Uh, thankfully, mine just had mild symptoms uh, for several days, but that meant I was in isolation for 10 days. And the rest of my family, thankfully, did not get COVID, uh, but that meant I was in isolation from my family for 10 days as well. Um, so I was in my nice little studio, apartment, laundry room, part of our house. I feel like I could like resonate with many people living in Denver right now. It's like oh, 150 square feet. Everything's crammed into one space. I'm like my air mattress. This was queen size. I had fit a queen size air mattress in there. It was like, this is the space that I live. My wife graciously offered uh, the bedroom. I was like, no, you guys have the rest of the house. I will live in the laundry room. So that's where I live for 10 days. Thankfully, we have a like 10 glass panel door that goes from the laundry room into the rest of the house. And so at least I could like see people. I could see my family, I could talk to them. And we could still like sit down. My, my sons would sit on the other side of the door. We'd sit down and be able to, to read books to them and pray with them and talk with them. You know, I had a Sono speaker on my side. They had one on their side. So we could still like play the same music and do our impromptu dance parties as a family, which there was like next to the washing machine, just dancing. Um, we'd get like, you know, the dry erase markers and I'm drawing dinosaurs for my four-year-old. On the, on the, so we're like finding ways to connect, but it's not the fullness of presence with one another. Oh, my, my soul ached just to, to be able to embrace my family, just to, to give them a hug again, to go a week and a half. It's like, oh, I can see you, I can talk to you, I can experience elements of like being near to you, but I'm not fully with you. 
This is what the season of Advent is meant to instruct us about the reality of life right now, this already but not yet, the time between. That Christ has come. He has come. He has conquered sin and Satan and death. He has set us free, brought us into relationship with God. And he has begun the process of making things new, to experience the effects of his love, the, the restoration rolling out through our lives. But it's not yet what it will be. We're still seeing through a glass dimly. We're still not fully experiencing the reality of who Christ is when he comes one day again. So this is what Advent is meant to instruct us about. There's something real about the, the world that we walk in right now. Uh, that you know, maybe over the past couple of years we feel more of the, the not yet realities um, of, of, of Christ and, and what he's done for us. Uh, but this morning we're going we're gonna to finish up this four-part Advent series on love in a self-centered world. There's something we all ache for, long for, and yet it can still feel elusive again and again. So let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your love. I thank you that you have uh, sent the one who would love us in the way that we need it. I just want to recognize the, the different experiences and felt realities and emotional states and uh, yeah, just where we're coming in this morning. We, we carry different things with us. And so please give us the, the gift of being honest about that, about naming reality uh, in your presence before one another, knowing that there's a God who meets us in those places. Yeah, Spirit, please, uh, even now, kind of search the, the corridors of our hearts and, and shine a light in the places that, that need uh, to receive your word, to receive your presence, to receive your blessing, to receive your healing. Now, we want to know your love. And we want to know in particular ways, not just generic ways. Uh, so please work that this morning. Now, please meet with us. Spirit, we recognize you are here. We ask that you would show up in, in very clear, very profound ways for us. Uh, to glorify uh, your name and to, to work amongst your people. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are a society saturated with a love for love. Um, from the TV show, the reality TV shows that kind of purport that love, you know, contestants are going to find love on the other side of this experience, and we're kind of like dialed in to it, to, to the songs about love and the kind of the different definitions about what that is and about places that we long for it, movies and TV shows, whether it's the main plot or it's the backgrounded kind of sub motif, somewhere you can follow the thread of the love story that goes throughout the different stories that we, we love to hear about, to the longings that each of us have to be loved deeply by another to be loved genuinely and actively and fully. And the real impact that we feel when those who were supposed to love us or had committed to love us or communicated they did love us failed in that. Some sort of breach of trust, some sort of broken promise. Some of the greatest heroics have been done because of love and perhaps the greatest personal devastation comes in the absence of love where we should have expected it. But if we have an obsession with love, and understandably, it seems we have an equal confusion about what love even is in our society. 
He was loved to mean so many different things. I remember as a kid growing up in elementary school, you know, to be in the, the line, get ready to get lunch, and like trying to peer over your friend's shoulder and see what's up there. It's like, oh, it's hot dogs. I love hot dogs. And somebody in the back of the line inevitably would be like, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? I'm like, oh, come on. Joe, like, come on, man. Let's, everybody's heard the joke. Um, but we use the word love for the most trivial and trite things. And yet we use the same word for the most important relationships in our life. We even to say that God loves us and we love God. And so we have this kind of full spectrum. In other places, love is almost synonymous with sex and sexual intimacy. It's like, well, to love someone is kind of the fullness and the rights of this kind of expression of it in this kind of way. There's just this confusion about what, what do we even mean by it? What are we even talking about when we say love? We also become so selective as to who we feel obligated to show love toward. If someone slights us or disagrees with us or disappoints us or just grows disinteresting to us over time, um, then we can move away from them. We can cancel them. We can ghost them. We can ignore them. We can sabotage them, talk badly about them. No longer do we think we owe them something. Well, all this cultural swirling and I think personal hunger around love, it, it illuminates something about us. And that's that the human person is designed to be loved. That we are made to be loved, to receive love and to give love. In a true, real, genuine sense, we are made to be loved. Yes, often we experience its brokenness and absence. But this often only highlights the reality that we've been made to be loved. And we ache for it. It's amazing to me how often in just processing life with friends or meeting with people, eventually you ask enough questions and have like a, a rich enough of a conversation, you get to the point where there's that, that hunger, that ache, and that longing to be loved. The places of pain for us are, are typically those places where I needed to be loved in, in this way, in this moment, and I wasn't. Or the people in my life didn't come through in the way that I had anticipated or rightly expected or in, had longed for. So we're made to be loved, we're made to give and show love. I think we all know it, we all feel it, we all live this way. If that's the case, then we should know what this is. We should know what love is. The God who says, I am love, the God is love, how does he define it? What does it mean to truly love? Before we get there, I want to consider... Three ways that I think in our, our kind of broader way of understanding things, whether it's in church culture or broader society, that we, we misdefine and we misunderstand what love is. I imagine all of us can relate in different ways, uh, perhaps even with each of them. And then we'll look at, back at 1 John 4, that Audra read for us earlier, to see what is the love that God has shown for us, and then how does that connect to us in this season of Advent. But I'll start with this. We often get our definition of love wrong because we get our loves wrong. We have to get our definition of love wrong because we get our loves wrong. Here's what I mean. Augustine, in his famous book, Confessions, will talk about the disordered loves of humans. He's talking about his own kind of journey, but this is true for all of us. Uh, that, that God, in his kindness, in his love, has made all things to be enjoyed. Like he's given us really good gifts in the created world. He says, enjoy it. According to my voice in relationship with me, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 4 kind of walks us through all these things are meant to be received with prayer and thanksgiving 
under the good voice of God. And yet in our sinfulness and our brokenness and our confusion, we tend to kind of flick these good things up above, kind of the order of our affections and priorities above God himself and say, well, this is the definer of what life is. This is where I truly find hope and joy. And no longer submitted to the voice of God, uh, but rather this is actually what feels good to me. This is what I want. And so when we do that, that distorts everything. And that includes our definition and understanding of love. So specifically, here's the first one. One of our misdefinitions of love. Love is you validate and approve of me. Full stop. You validate and approve of me. Therefore, you love me. Typically follows these lines. If I like something or want to pursue something, if I desire something, if I kind of perceive of myself or other things in a particular way, then for you to love me is to do nothing but affirm that. Support it. Get behind it. If you challenge it, that's the opposite of love. You're actually hating me or despising me. You're pushing against something that, that is there within me. There's an entire ethical, kind of cultural ethical stance um, that has shifted over the past number of decades in Western society that uh, one philosopher, Charles Taylor, has called that we're now in the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity. You know, historically, and, and still in most places around the globe today, Yes, it's worth knowing what's going on internally. It's, it's worth paying attention to like what's there on the inside. But for the sake of rearranging those things, reprioritizing in such a way to, to adhere to an outside good standard that we're meant to kind of grow and mature into. We actually need to change something, pay attention to it, but for the sake of conforming to something outside of ourselves, not just conforming to what's already there in the self. So yes, know thyself, but for the sake of conforming thyself to the right standard, to grow into something. We're actually incomplete in and of ourselves. As Charles Taylor put it, be, um, it used to be that being in touch with some source, God, say, or the idea of the good, was considered essential to full being. Only now, the source we have to connect with is deep in us. This is part of the massive subjective turn of modern culture a new form of inwardness in which we come to think of ourselves as being beings with inner depths. Now, there's, there's good here to be sure. But to recognize the intricacies of how God has made us and wired us and the personalities and the giftings and the callings and all of that, there's so much goodness that God has made. And to recognize those things and to, to celebrate what God calls good within that is, is absolutely right. And it's also necessary that we pay attention to sometimes the, the good standard that is kind of laid out before us by those in power or those who are kind of uh, laying out like this is, this is what it means to, to conform. A lot of times those standards aren't actually the good. They're just kind of the self-interest of those who are in control. And so to challenge those things is absolutely required if we're to pursue what God has for us. So to challenge the misuse of power is necessary, but to challenge the very notion that there is a sense of the good outside of the self, uh, that's, that's not good and it's not loving. It actually corresponds to what the ancients have called the incurvatus inse, which in Latin means the inward curvature upon the self. That whereas as humans we're, we're, we're designed to be bent out toward God and others, our tendency is to kind of bend right back into ourselves. Say, what, what's there and how do I, how do I get what I want? How do my desires become externalized in such a way that other people will affirm them and help me realize them? 
So this assumption about love is, is almost everywhere in, in our Western society, now, especially a place like Denver. Uh, we, we assume that to love another person is to just come alongside what's already there. Never challenge. You do you. Love is love. It's another way of just saying, hey, I'll define these things for myself. And, and you, you can't kind of question the self-originated thing that I've come up with, the desire that I have. No challenging allowed. Our almost four-year-old Everett, um, he still has a bag of Halloween candy that he carts around. Um, I should say bags or containers, because the favorite thing right now is, is not to eat the candy. It's just like to rearrange it into different places and sort of like dump down on the floor, kind of categorize a little bit, fight off little brother, ask if he can have a piece, and to like move it in another container and move it around again. So usually he's just interested in transporting the candy. But every once in a while, he's like, no, I need, I need to eat it. I need to eat a lot of it. And we try to be halfway decent parents. It's like, okay, when do you eat candy and how much and moderation, like all those things. Um, but sometimes we're like, buddy, you know, it's, not, it's, it's almost dinner time. We're not going to do candy or it's, you know, time for a nap or whatever. And if every once in a while he'd be like, well, that's mean. That's mean that you're telling me I can't eat candy. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's go the other route. As much candy, let's say, as much candy as our three-year-old wanted, go for it. Just eat yourself silly into this sugar. You know, because now, now he actually doesn't say he wants candy. He says, because I want sugar. Dad, I want sugar, because he's learned what's in it. It's like, oh, man, I, I imagine you do. I think we all do. Um, we just don't necessarily like the after effect. Um, so let's say it's like, hey, you do you, buddy. Like, you, eat what you want. Like, if that's, if that's your heart's desire, if that's what you long for, get after it. I'm not going to challenge that because I want to love you. I mean, if we carry that even further, let's be honest. If, if, our, if our three-year-old does what he wants, he will eat loads of candy and beat up on his little brother and occasionally wear pants and <laughs> still read books because he loves books. Um, it's like that is, that is not... The way we love people is not by ceasing to challenge things that we know not to be good for them. This is not the way that we actually live into it except when it comes to certain categories. Actually, that's, to do that is actually passivity. It's actually laziness. It's like, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to even kind of think critically about the thing. I'm not going to actually potentially make a sacrifice in such a way that you might not like me in the moment uh, because I love you, because I actually want what's good for you, and I'm willing to push into that. It should strike us that what our culture often calls love, you know, give people over to the desires that they have, that's not the way that God loves us. It's the way he judges people. Like in Romans 1, it says that he gives, in his judgment, he gives people over to the desires they already have without challenging them. Now, this is not to say that all of our desires are inherently bad or that part of loving people is recognizing things they want and leveraging our lives to help them get them. That, that is absolutely part of love. But if we just kind of go in as a blanket statement, like, oh, we just give whatever another wants, we're falling into passivity and really more in line with how God judges rather than loving we find this in so many ways, inside the church, outside the church, in our relationships, wherever we go. It's often subtle, but the basic posture is other people exist in order to, to kind of be a means by which I can, I can realize my good life. But the good life that I want, um, other people, we kind of instrumentalize them. That they become the thing that I can use or manipulate or have in my life as long as, if and as, they help perpetuate the things 
that I want for myself. And if they're an obstacle, well, either I get out of that relationship, I move away from them, or I just kind of live with this growing sense of bitterness and resentment and being frustrated with them and, and not showing a, a humble forgiveness and love back toward them. Spend most of the time on this first one because this is the cultural water that we swim in. Um, the assumption that to love is just kind of live and let live and never challenge. And, and we can find ourselves in this cultural water uh, being sucked right along with it. So that's the first one. Second, second misdefinition. Love is others sacrificing me for themselves. Others sacrificing me for themselves. Uh, I have, you know, dear friends and family members who would, you know, recognize themselves as being Enneagram 2s. And Enneagram 2s, we all love, everybody loves the Enneagram 2s in their life. Because the Enneagram 2 is wired to image God in the way that he perceives a need and then says, how do I come alongside and meet that need? Like, how, how do I love people in, in such a way uh, that supports them, that strengthens them, that encourages them? You, it's like those in the room that I'm sure there are plenty of like Enneagram 2s, you just like, that's how you see the world. That's how you see relationships. Um, just like showing a sacrificial love over and over and over again. Such a clear delight in our lives. But there's a dark side of Enneagram 2. It says something like, I'll take it all on. If there is a need that exists in someone that is somehow connected to me, I must be the one to help realize the need. Even to the point of operating at a, at a deficit, just like a, a resource deficit, an emotional deficit, still have to move forward to meet that need. And I think within the church, elsewhere as well, but I think kind of the, the subculture of Christianity, there is this this expectation that gets kind of tossed around and, and, and assumed that we all, all need to kind of live into the dark side of Enneagram 2. That we always need to be giving more of ourselves constantly. Ne never really reflecting on that or evaluating that, but just like give, give, give. If someone asks something, you have to do it because you're loving neighbor, you're loving God through loving your neighbor. You have to always give more without ever recognizing like, do I have the energy for this right now? Is this something that I can actually offer up as a sacrifice, as part of being like a living sacrifice, as representative of God, or do I just not have it right now? So we, we end up allowing others to use our capacity for us. We allow them to spend our energy on our behalf, no longer being self-sacrificial ourselves. We're left tired, expired, frustrated, confused, thinking that we're loving in the way that we're supposed to be. I think a way that illustrates this, uh, several weeks back, we were with some friends um, at, a, at a restaurant and got the, got the bill, and one of the line items on there was the kitchen appreciation tax. I was like, oh, like, they, didn't, they didn't ask me if I appreciated the kitchen um, or not. I did. Like, it was very good food. They were a little late on the food, but I get it. Like, staffing is kind of tough right now. Um, so I did. There was, like, a genuine appreciation. But what the tax they put on there, like, what they charged me was not a kitchen appreciation tax. It was just a tax. Like, it was just a way to, to cover more of the costs that I'm sure doing business right now incurs. Um, it was just mislabeled. Like, if they would have asked and said, hey, do you appreciate you want to throw? I think that's, that's what you call a tip. Um, this is what we allow other people to do in our lives, though. They, they take the kitchen appreciation tax. They, they kind of tax our lives for us. And, and we, we're doing this in the name of love, but, but then we, we're left exhausted. We're left 
operating at a deficit without anything left. I think this is particularly relevant in the, the moment we're in right now, coming off the past couple of years. Um, I don't know if your experience has been anything like mine, but I feel this personally and almost every person that I talk to. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't have the same capacity that I did a couple of years ago. I don't have the, the same kind of emotional reserves as I used to. Like maybe I'm still operating under the old assumptions of where I used to be, but I just don't have it to offer. I, you know, I'm used to, it's like, man, if someone's in need or whatever else, like you find somewhere to put it. Like you find somewhere to kind of emotionally rearrange, like, yes, absolutely. But even those people that I talk to that, you know, in the past I've always experienced them as having just like loads and loads of relational and emotional capacity. They're saying the same thing. I just, I don't have it right now. It feels like there's a tax on my life, but, but the expectations and demands, they, they almost seem greater. They certainly haven't become less. The thing is, if we keep going at the same pace that we've been trying to, we will run ourselves into the ground. And we have to, to allow ourselves the freedom to say that, yes, making sacrifices of ourselves, that, that is the essence of love. But allowing others to make the, that decision for us of like what we will sacrifice and when we will sacrifice and to what extent, that, that's not love. We're calling it by the wrong name. That's allowing others to do that for us. And I think we need to be aware so that we're actually drinking deeply of the love of the Father and then making those decisions, where am I going to leverage my life? Where do I need to sacrifice? So that's second. Third misdefinition of love. Love is impossible because of what I've seen, what I've done, or what's been done to me. Love's impossible because of what I've seen, what I've done, or what's been done to me. Or maybe for you, it's like I've, I've felt the damage of relationships too many times. I felt a break of trust in this particular area. That parent, that friend, that child, that sibling, that pastor, that church, that whatever it is, that spouse. There's been a breakdown of love in such a way that I'm not convinced. Sure, I can say that I believe it's out there, but I'm not convinced to kind of the soul gut level, the love can't actually exist. And I'm not sure I want to get close enough to actually risk that, to feel that. Maybe it's, I, but I've done too much. Like you don't know the pattern of sin in my life. Or you, you don't know the thing that, I'm, that I've done years ago that I've not shared with anybody. Or you don't know this area of darkness that I just don't want to be exposed to the light. Like, could there be love? I don't believe there could be love for me in this place. If others knew this about me, there wouldn't be any love available for me. Maybe the abuse you've suffered, it so sabotaged your sense of self that you imagine intimacy, care, concern, love, investment for my good, where I can actually trust and not fear. I'm not sure that's a real category. For each of us, if we settle into an honest space with our, our souls and our lives, we all have these areas in one form or another. And maybe they're really direct and explicit in our minds and profound. And maybe it's just a little more subtle, just kind of this sneaking suspicion. I'm like, ah, yeah, I believe in the, the love of God, but does he, does he really? Like, is his love actually for me? Like, the fullness of me and where I've been and where I am. I remember a pastor saying uh, one time years ago, are you a morning person or a night person? 
I'm like, well, historically, it was a night person, but I've been kind of getting up earlier recently. And um, he's like, no, 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 no. Not, not in that sense, not in the traditional sense. Are you a morning person or a night person? When does the, the shame enter in? When does the anxiety flood your soul? When does that guilt just like pollute your mind? When is that, that plaguing memory of some past event or something you've done in the past? It's like pound against your mind. Because his experience was, and his argument was, that, that for most of us, and I've found this to be true, in those kind of still moments, right before we go to bed, or right when we wake up, maybe it's one of those, maybe it's both of those, in those really vulnerable moments where things start to, to settle a little bit, that's where the enemy wants to rush in and just start berating our soul, start populating our mind with shame. Maybe, maybe there's those kind of repetitive voices that come back over and over again. Maybe it's something that's been said to you in the past. It's just on repeat. If you're not worthy, you're too much, you're inadequate, you did it again, you can never be forgiven. There's no love left for you. According to this definition, I've been a full-on morning person recently. It's like, oh, this anxiety and sense of inadequacy. Just like, pfft. As soon as I'll wake up, it's like the first things. It was like trying to offer this to the Lord and give it back to Jesus and, and take these things captive. It's like, ah, it's like beating up against my, my soul over and over again. It's like, oh, in these places where I feel so unable to do the things that are in front of me, like feeling inadequate, is there love for me in these spaces? I mean, this is when we can be honest about it. We can recognize the type of, of spiritual bondage with a real enemy who's trying to keep us trapped in that. It's a form of, of spiritual slavery. And we're designed, I am designed, you are designed to be loved out of this, to experience the love of, God, love of God in those places, to be brought out of it. And really, each of these three misdefinitions are a form of, of spiritual bondage and slavery. It's a way of, of, of taking the self and, and so kind of putting us at the center. Uh, so as to cloud us from who God is and what he is up to, what he has done to love us. You know, the first misdefinition is saying the self is, and its desires are so central, so important, so necessary um, that, that they cannot be challenged. They must be celebrated. You know, the second one says that the self and what I have to offer and what others want to kind of extract out of my life is so necessary and essential that this is where I find my life. This is where I find my identity. They can manhandle however they want. And this last one says that, well, for myself, whatever I've done, whatever I've seen, whatever I've experienced, it's too, it's too big. It's too large. It's too substantial. There can't be a bigger kind of love that could actually move into that space and, and crowd it out and, and heal it and speak a better word. It should strike us, too, that each of these categories recognizes that a cost must be born in order for love to exist. There must be a cost for love to exist. One says that others, you need to, to bear the cost for me. Just gotta get in line, get behind my desires, my vision of the good life, and you, you'll bear the cost. And if you don't, then I'll make you bear the cost until you can get out of my way. The second says, I'll be the perpetual payer of the cost. I'll absorb all of the cost for you. Again and again, even when I'm operating at a deficit, there's nothing left, nothing left to give. 
I will go into such deep emotional debt in order to absorb the cost. This last one says, well, the cost is just too great. The cost can't be paid for me to truly be freed and to experience love in these places. So we have the self that can so easily gravitate toward the middle, and we have the recognition of a cost that must be borne if we are to be free. And Christmas helps us to resolve this. Christmas is the declaration that God would bear the cost for us. Our reality, apart from Jesus, who came to us as a humble baby, is bleak. But because he came, because he loved us, we're able to dwell in his love and to show that love to others. So I want to look now to 1 John chapter 4. So if you close your Bible, I encourage you to open it back up. 1 John chapter 4, starting verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another. So so we're given this command that we need to love one another. Even in in kind of the argument of 1 John, the whole book, there's these three tests of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. It's like we walk in the light or in righteousness. Uh, We actually adhere to believing in Christ as he's revealed himself and reject false teaching around that. And the third one is we love one another. We leverage our lives for the good of the other. So what is this love? Well, first... Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love or does not know God or does not love does not know God because God is love. So he's making the same argument from two different angles. It's like God is love. It's gonna, it kind of builds out of his essence, who he is. And so if we are to love, then it means that we know him. We've been born of him. We've been spiritually born of God and connected to him intimately. And if we fail to love, since God is the source of love, then we don't know God. It cuts both ways. But God is love. As one commentator has put it, it is a necessity of God's nature. It is his very nature to love. He cannot exist without loving. He cannot but love. He is, he has has ever been love. From all eternity, from before all worlds, God is love. Love never is or can be, never was or could be absent from his being. He never is or can be. He never was or could be God without being also love. So going back to that tag that we'll hear oftentimes of, you know, love is love, which is just saying, I want a blank slate to define what this is. God comes in and says, I am love. I've actually revealed myself in a particular way. I actually am a certain way. And to love is to, to walk in line consistent with who I am what I've revealed, what I've given, what I've done, what I've shown. God is love, which is such a a more powerful, a more beautiful message for us. Well, how did God love us? God is love and all that he does is love. How did this get demonstrated? Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So verse 9, this is the incarnation. This is what we, we celebrate at Christmas time. That God took on human flesh in the, the form of a baby and lived a life here amongst us. He came into the world confused and distorted. He came into our bleakness and our rebellion. He came into our sin and our brokenness. Not for the sake of kind of self-improvement or enhancement or bettering our lifestyle or just kind of like being this kind of spiritual option that we can, if we like it, 
if it seems to help us, if it seems to fit into line of our, in line with our vision of the good life, then we can add him in. Brother, he came so that we may have life through him, to live through him. Meaning that apart from him, we only have death. We have spiritual death. Things that may feel like glimmers of light, of, of life, but not the fullness of it, not the essence of it. He came into a broken and dead world to give us life. So that's the incarnation. Verse, and then verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what we celebrate at Good Friday and Easter. Because God did not send Jesus to, to merely be some sort of moral example, some good demonstration of, hey, if you just kind of follow me in these kinds of ways, then you can self-improve your way into life. No, he had to come as a propitiation, as a sacrifice for our sins. This word propitiation is, is one that is uh, much less popular nowadays, even amongst professing Christians. You can be defined in different ways. Atoning sacrifice, uh, sacrifice on behalf of, to take away our sins. But the sting of the word propitiation is that it implies there is a just wrath of God upon sin and sinner that must be dealt with, that must be paid for, that must be satisfied if we are to be brought back into loving relationship with God. Our tendency, our kind of cultural narrative, even you know, amongst uh, many churches, kind of the, the assumption is we're not that bad. We're not that bad. We don't like to think of ourselves as that bad. And if we start to, we just want to compare. It's like, ah, well, I'm not, as, I'm not as bad as them. Like, I didn't do that. Like, well, it's like I'm not quite there. And yet the fact that Jesus had to come as our propitiation demonstrates that we are that bad in and of ourselves. In and of ourselves, we're that bad off. Not to say there's nothing good that God has given us or made us with, that his, his goodness and kindness like, doesn't like, get shown through us by virtue of being human persons. But that when it comes to having spiritual life, when it comes to knowing the God who made us, we need one who would come to sacrifice, to be a propitiation for our sins. If love should be defined, as we looked at earlier, as validation or approval of where we already are, of what's already there, that Jesus did the opposite of love us. Because he came and said, actually, you need for me to die for you. You actually need for me to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf so that you can be set free into the love of God. Because God is love, because God is love, he was motivated to take this up himself. You see this quote by A.W. Pink that I think summarizes it well. Um, it says this, but God's love comes to be self-sacrifice when its objects are seen to be corrupt and vile, guilty and deserving only of wrath, polluted and unclean, with nothing to attract but everything to repel, alike unloving and unlovely. To continue to love creatures thus seen, not only so, but to love them with a love that does not spare his own son, a love that, when law and justice demand victim, or rather that he should be the victim than they, that is a manner of love implying something else and something more than bountifulness. And that is God's manner of love to those whom he now sees. Somehow I've yet to see this show up on a Valentine's Day card and a message of love. Um, this is the way that God has loved us. 
So the answer is not to mitigate sin and say, well, it's not actually that bad. And when God comes and loves us, he's like, well, they meant well. You know, maybe it's not too awful. I can just kind of turn the other way. He says, no, it is that bad, but I'm willing to absorb the cost for it. But that means for us, there is no aspect of our lives, there's no area of darkness, there's no area of shame or guilt or sin that cannot be touched and received and healed by the love of God. This is where the, the weightiness and the beauty of, love God, of God's love comes in. We don't shy away from these categories. We invite him into these places where we say, yes, I need your love here. Yes, this is what has been done to me. Yes, this is where the devastation exists. Yes, this is where I have run from you. Yes, this is the, the pattern of sin that I've walked in. Maybe for years. Say, I need your love here, here in this place. And so where we wonder, where you question, is the love of God for me? Can it meet me in this place? Can it meet me in this brokenness? In this area of pain? In this area of what's been done for me? The answer is yes. Look to the manner in which God has loved you. That he sent his son, chose not to spare his own son, but to reach into the depths of our brokenness and our darkness and to give us life, to pay for that sin and to meet us there with tenderness and love because of who he is, because of who he is, because God is love and overflows with this kind of love. Then he goes to verses 11 and 12 because this love does something in us and through us. Beloved, if God so loved us. This word so, a lot of times we hear it as like a, oh, so loved us. It's more, actually, it's in this manner, like in this way. Like this, this is the way that God has loved us. And if he's done that, if he's loved us in this kind of way, you know, the kind of enemy love, with the people who are working against him, he reaches in and, and loves us in that place. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. God is spirit, and so we, we haven't seen him. But if and as we love one another, uh, this, this love of God becomes manifest. It becomes perfected in the sense that the full intent that God intended from the very beginning is that his love would flow through his people out into relationship with others. We're able to walk in more of this fullness, more of what he wanted to realize through his love. And this is what we're called to in relationship with others. Not trying to do it in our own strength, but recognizing the love of God, walking in, abiding in the love of God, allowing it to flow out in relationship with others. So what is, what is this love? Well, I've, I've been at this, this far. Um, I'll make it through this sermon without the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, um, but I won't with the John Mark Comer, so I'm going to sneak one in. Um, Comer defines love this way. A compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. And if you want an even more distilled version, you say that love is sacrifice for the genuine good of the other. Sacrifice for the genuine good of the other. We cannot love like this on our own. We can't. When we try, we will find ourselves 
just trying to, to, to manipulate self-centeredness in some new way or some old way just repackaged and relabeled and say this is love, but ultimately self has become the focal point, some means to our own end or gaining a sense of identity. It is only as we experience the sacrificial love of God through Christ that we were able to, to have that spill out in our lives. And this is why we must abide in the love of Christ, to remain in the love of Christ, to linger there, to stay there, to hang out there, to grow comfortable there, to return to it when we stray again and again and again. We must learn to delight ourselves in the love of God. Well, with Advent, uh, you probably have heard about the two comings of Christ that are in view. You know, Christ has come in his birth, and he will come again uh, when he returns one day. Uh, some, some will talk about the third coming of Christ, that at Pentecost, with the giving of the Spirit, uh, Jesus came by that Spirit, by his Spirit, uh, to fill us with power, to be witnesses, to testify, to preach the gospel, to bear witness to the kingdom through what he's given us. Well, others will also talk about a, a fourth coming that's in view in, during Advent. In some ways, it's kind of just the, the continuation of, of the third coming. That the Spirit of God longs to come to his people to manifest his presence again and again and again and again and again. As we plead with him, as we confess before him, as we ask him, as we seek to abide in his love, as we're honest before him. I mean, as I'm honest, I, 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 feel, I feel my failure. But even just having this text work over me over the past few weeks, it's like, oh, how often, how easily, how quickly I, I run to, to being critical it's placing demands on other people. It's not lingering in the love of God and allowing that to, to wash over me and then just like be able to give myself as a sacrifice to others. No, it's, it flips backwards and thinking that, that others would, would exist for me and try to extract the sacrifices for others or, or thinking that I must accomplish all for the sake of others and running myself into the ground, thinking that there's always more to achieve, there's always more to do. Look at the need, look at what's in front of me. And so, all of us, we must return again to these comings of Christ, that Christ has come. He has come. He's entered into our story, our narrative, our brokenness, our need. And he has done what is necessary to bring us to the Father. And he will come again. This is our sure hope, that he will make all things new, where we feel the absence of love, where we feel like we just cannot experience just maybe a little taste here and there, but not the fullness of it. He will bring that one day. But Christ has also sent his spirit to live among us. And that as we come before him again and again and again, asking him to enter in, asking him to speak, asking him to heal, asking him to show up, to bear witness to the fact that we are loved by the Father, he will do it. I'm not sure the origin of this quote anymore because I've heard it from so many different places. Um, but it goes something like this. Cheer up. You are far worse than you ever dare to admit. And you are far more loved than you ever dare to imagine. We are freed into honesty. Much of abiding in the love of Christ is living a life that names reality. It allows us to, to be honest about what's there, what has been there, what's there right now, the places we feel the tension, the brokenness in our own lives, and to, to, to invite the love of God to rush into those places, to be in community where others are speaking that love 
to us, to linger in those places, to return to it often. It's this receptivity to the love of God in the particular places that we, we so desperately need, so desperately long for. Um, I had someone come up to me after last service and just ask, like, oh, I, I know the things. Like, I know the theology. What does it really mean for this love of God to, to begin to just, like, simmer in the soul? And we could talk for hours and read hundreds of books about what that looks like. But it has to begin in this place of creating space where we come before the living God. We slow our souls down enough to to name what's there, to be honest with what we feel, what we're experiencing, and invite him in to speak a better word, to speak love and healing and grace in those places. And then to be in relationship with other people where we can reach that level of trust and honesty, to allow them to image that love of God to us so that it becomes more kind of real and vivid to our souls. It has to at least begin there as we, we learn to, to abide in and to, to linger in this love of God. But we are still in the time between we're caught in the comings of Christ. We have the Spirit of God, but we ache for something so much greater, and so we, we plead with them, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So I want to take uh, just a, a minute now. I'm going to pray for us and then give uh, a couple questions for us to, to reflect on before we do the Apostles' Creed and Communion. Uh, but here are the two questions. First, how has God loved you? How has God loved you? Not in a generic sense, but get as particular as possible. Like, how has he loved you? Where, where have you seen the evidence of God lo- God's love in your life? Maybe it's way back a long time ago. Maybe it's something really recent. But can you name those? How has God loved you? And two, how might you abide in this love? This love that God has manifested through Christ. How might you abide in it? What does it look like to, to, to hang out there? So let me pray for us. Take a couple minutes to, to reflect on those questions and we'll, we'll come back together. God, how great you are that you have loved us in this kind of way. And seeing our desperation, seeing our need, seeing our uh, running from you, uh, you sacrificed much so that we could brought, be brought near to the heart of God. Let's help us to pay attention to those areas. Help us to see, yeah, maybe with, with renewed clarity, the ways in which you've loved us and teach us, instruct us, instruct our lives. This is how we walk in it. This is how we abide in it. This is how it flows in us and through us. As the Spirit, just ask that even as we take a minute or two and, and consider our own lives, consider your work in us, um, speak. Draw things to mind. Maybe bring up uh, past experiences that have been tucked away for a while. And give us the, the wisdom and the resolve to, to know what to do with that and to, to follow through. And to meet with the right people, or to, to make the right phone call, to carve out the, the right space with you. And please meet with us, now, even now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.